Hello, good Sunday morning. I am so happy and honored to be here with you. Admittedly, when I was first asked to do a sermon, my thought was, I'm not qualified to do that. But your reverend ensured me that it wouldn't be a big deal. It would be simple. That he wanted me to share with you, essentially, my experiences, my understanding of history, my connection of history uh, and the present, as well as kind of where I am at this particular historical moment. And so we find ourselves in the midst of two pandemics. And I have chosen to act in a particular way, but it took some time and some effort to get there. And I want to talk to you about that today. And I'm going to start with where I was just a few weeks ago. The moment haunts me. It resides in my consciousness as a harbinger of stalled progress. It grasps my existence with the tension of every maddening expression of racial alterity and inhumanity I have witnessed, studied, experienced. I had somehow walked into the pages of my book that examines lynchings from 100 years ago. The world had collapsed into its own wretched history. It was the moment I saw the lynching of Ahmad Arbery unfold before me on television. He died in broad daylight. His murderers were not even arrested until two months later when national exposure and local protests shamed the state into action. Mart Arbery was lynched. Then Breonna Taylor, murdered while asleep in her bed. Then George Floyd. Eight minutes and 46 seconds. The man called out for his deceased mother when he likely realized he was going to die. Their names are added to a list too long to publish. That list does not even account for those harassed, arrested, imprisoned for the same acts that do not cause such repercussions for their white counterparts. That list does not account for the indignity, frustration, and anger experienced by those impacted by racism, structural inequality, in countless other ways. My own husband, a tall, beautiful, brown-skinned African-American man who has worked with the homeless for the past two decades, a man who puts everyone before himself, my husband, when we lived for a short time in a particular Washington state town, was pulled over by the police seven times in three months. Seven times. He was not issued a single citation, not one. One police officer told him he appeared to not have a definitive destination. He was once handcuffed and placed face down on the ground in Texas as police searched his car for nothing and then released him. It's challenging for one to understand the long-term impact of such acts, unless they happen to you. The world is already in the midst of a pandemic that has revealed long-standing racial and structural inequalities in this country. And then we sit at home. I sat at home and watched the murder of people unfold on television. It was too much for me, too heavy. My soul was weighted with the cries of too many. I became for a time hopeless. But God helped me realize through pay, prayer, through faith, through conversations with others, through reflection, that hopelessness is the language of those people, those powers, those spirits who seek only to divide us, to force us into complacency, disillusionment, despair. We must choose the language of hope, of action, of community. God, in my deepest moment of despair, as I sat on my couch just weeks ago with tears running down my face, watching the world unravel, worrying about my black husband, my black nephew, black brother, black cousin, wondering if I would get a call that someone found them threatening and ended their lives. In that moment of despair, God placed me in front of two paths. I had a choice, we all have a choice. I could continue down a path that kept me on a course to become increasingly distraught, angry, sullen, 
horrified and unable to do anything, or I could choose the path of those who continue to push forward despite adversity. Those I teach my students about, those who face seemingly insurmountable obstacles to change, to happiness, those who never gave up and paved the way for others, who work to create new moral paradigms. I have now chosen that path. It's not easy, but it is a path toward change, toward love, toward community. Now, before I talk about what it is that we need to all do on that path toward justice, toward community, let me pause and say this. If you find that you have a hard time choosing that path, if you find that no matter how hard you try, you are consumed by despair and can't get out of bed, choose a path of asking for help. There's no shame in that, only courage and love. Love of yourself and those around you. Be honest. Tell people around you how you feel and ask them to help you. So once we have decided to go on that path, what do we do? What does our journey look like? How do we fuel ourselves? What is our goal? On April 3rd, 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. arrived in Memphis, Tennessee. He was there to come to the aid of striking black sanitation workers, people considered by many to be the least among them. They were the downtrodden. Just weeks before, two black garbage collectors were killed. They were crushed by a faulty garbage truck, and the city failed to act. Their deaths revealed long-standing abuse of black workers in the city. So Dr. King arrives that Wednesday as 1,300 sanitation workers were on strike. He came to aid in their fight. That evening, the evening before his assassination on April 4th, 1968, he delivers an unbelievably powerful and emotional speech to a crowd gathered at Bishop Charles Mason Temple, revealing at times during that speech that he was entering his last moments. So he stood at the lectern, sick from what appeared to be influenza, a storm brewing outside. As the windows would slam at that temple, there were those he said, who said he seemed to, to almost flinch, to think perhaps it was gunfire, but he stayed and he talked. He stood at that lectern and he did exactly what one should do. He acted in a way that said, that which you have done to the least among us, you have also done unto me. While discussing the plight of the sanitation workers, he cited the story of the priest and the Levite. He used the story to highlight the importance of self-sacrifice. The question before you tonight, he implored, is not, if I stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to all the hours that I usually spend in my office every day, every week? The question is not, if I stop to help this man in need, what will happen to me? The question, Dr. King insisted, is if I do not stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to them? That's the question. What will happen to them? The question before us in this historical moment, this day and each day, is what will happen if you do nothing? If you do, you do not have to be economically and racially of them to be with them. You can still fight for them because they are you and you are them. We are one. Poet June Jordan said, we are the ones we've been waiting for. Don't check one thing off your list. Think about a fundamental shift in how we can affect change. As we travel down this path, remember that acts small and large are meaningful. Change can begin with a heartfelt hello as you travel. 
to a marginalized individual. Change begins with an uncomfortable conversation with a family member, neighbor, or friend, or coworker. It begins by exposing our children to other cultures. Never underestimate the power of a single moment, a single act of kindness, a selfless gesture. In 1938, the famed poet, playwright, activist, and novelist Langston Hughes penned his poem, Let America Be America Again, a critique of a country with unfulfilled promises, but a hopeful critique. The poem read in part, Oh, let America be America again, the land that never has been yet and yet must be, the land where every man is free. So who am I? I am America. Oh yes, I say it plain, America never was America to me. And yet, I swear this oath, America will be. He is referring to an idea, this land of the great that is so wrought with pain and oppression and suffering that boasted about freedom, yet failed to extend that freedom to people of color. But all is not lost, Langston Hughes tells us. And yet I swear this oath America will be. So what do we do with this as we travel on this path? America will be, Hughes proclaimed with immediacy and hope, it will be. So ask yourselves what it needs to be. What will you do to make it a land of equity, community, a land where the concept of eight minutes and 46 seconds ceases to exist? A land where love and understanding become governing principles. We understand why Hughes critiques the state of the country. The critique stands today as we see the racial disparities and deaths due to COVID-19, the racialized police brutality that only results, that not only results in the deaths of people of color, but also results in daily indignities of stop and frisk patterns, specifically targeting black and Latinx people. But Hughes reminds us America will be this day and every day forward. It will be what we decided to be as we travel down this path. We are all America, despite those who work to create a singular notion of what it means, a singular dangerous notion that fuels the ire and desires of those in elected positions like the nation's attorney general who refuses to acknowledge the existence of systemic racism. Those who want to stop us cold in our tracks from traveling down a path toward freedom and equity and safety. Today and every day going forward, we determine what we will be. We will not let them stop us. We will not function in binaries, us versus them, black versus white, a member of the LGBTQ community versus not, Christian versus Muslim. We are one. There should not be a binary, but we often arrange our existence as such, which allows people to say, that's not me. That's the opposite of me. So I'm not impacted by that. That's not my problem. If you have arranged your life as such, if you have chosen to relax into an existence which allows you to feel comfortable in a me versus them scenario, then use today to shake yourself out of that. Each moment is a new moment to create change. The responsibility to facilitate equity, understanding, empathy belongs to every single one of us. My friends, we are in the midst of a third reconstruction. The first followed a long, blood-filled civil war that ended the iniquitous institution of slavery. That reconstruction brought hope, promise, and political empowerment to a downtrodden people. The backlash to that success ushered in nearly 100 years of a system, Jim Crow, that promoted and codified white supremacy in most arenas of life. It was a century sanctioned by the federal government, 
by a series of Supreme Court rulings and a lack of action in opposition to it that allowed Jim Crow to exist and thrive. And so a second reconstruction was needed to dismantle the wicked arrangement, the oppressive existence of our brothers and sisters. That second reconstruction came in the form of a modern civil rights movement. The foot soldiers in that movement who woke up each morning and put one foot in front of the other on the path toward freedom did not stop. They worked to create new moral paradigms as we will work as we travel on this path. They successfully urged the creation of new legislation as we will create as we travel down this path. They stood together for the cause of liberty, of justice, as we stand together to force a nation to confront its wicked reality, to make the words written in the founding documents apply to all. We can and must continue the work of those foot soldiers as we march toward a world of equity and justice. We have come a long way in this nation. But structural inequality is not a relic of the past. It is real, it is present. It appears in education, employment, housing. It is what we will face as we travel. When hate is sanctioned by the very people elected to lead us, by a man in the White House who openly approves of and even encourages hate and divisiveness, by those who support him in their chance for people to go back to their country or put them in cages, it is no wonder that acts of racial intolerance and violence have increased exponentially over the last few years. We have witnessed the events of the past several weeks and experience the frustration and anger engendered by the reasons that created the need for the protests that we see now. We must understand that the protests, the frustrations, are not just about the murder of George Floyd. They are also about the daily harassments and indignities suffered by black and brown people at the hands of the criminal justice system, of far too many other entities and individuals. Many of us have been greatly impacted by the frustration inherent in witnessing a disproportionate number of black and brown people die from this health pandemic. The anger in the country at this time is about the structural inequality that has created seemingly insurmountable barriers to progress. But we must stand together in unity. We cannot veer from this path. We must lean on each other. We must pray to God for the strength to remain solid on this path toward freedom, toward justice. This is not a black or brown problem, this is a human problem. One person is not free and safe if all are not free and safe. We are all God's children. And so we find ourselves in the midst of a third reconstruction. An opportunity for legal and moral change. I'm so very encouraged by seeing people travel together on this path across racial, ethnic, generational, and religious boundaries, coming together in the streets, on social media, on Zoom calls to demand change, to change ourselves, to change the laws. People involved in the second reconstruction were a diverse group, no doubt, but nothing like we are seeing today. That is what should motivate us, sustain us. So many beautiful people are calling for justice for their brothers and sisters. We are watching a beloved community form right before our eyes. It is absolutely amazing. In the midst of turmoil and uprisings that had gripped much of the nation in 1968, when people were rebelling against systemic racism and police brutality in the absence of human rights, Dr. King penned his final book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community, imploring people to understand the frustrations, to dismantle systems of inequity. We have chosen community when people from across those boundaries I spoke of just a moment ago pour into the streets demanding change, sit in boardrooms and demand change, there will still be those who fervently attempt to make chaos the order of the day, 
by promoting divisiveness, by pushing you off that path, by dismissing the concerns of others, by denying the existence of systemic racism, by brutalizing others. But we must fight against them because we have chosen, we have chosen community. So continue to educate yourselves. Continue to have conversations that might be uncomfortable as you travel, it's okay. Sit with the discomfort, understand it, come to terms with it. Use it to create within yourself and in others change. Witness and recognize the change that has been made. Changes are being made across the country. It is beautiful, it is amazing and encouraging. Focus on those successes as primers for what else can and will be done. We can change people's hearts and minds. And if we can't change the hearts and minds of some people, we can legislate their inability to harm anyone. So write to your local national officials, call them, run for office, share their numbers with others, learn about current legislation aimed at mitigating racial and social injustice, vocally support that legislation, vote, vote and fight against voter suppression. In closing, I leave you with a story told by renowned scholar Robin G. Kelly, a story that I hope you will think about as you travel down that path, a story that often sustains me in my weaker moments when I feel disillusioned, when I feel challenged. Dr. Kelly came from a world of drug dealers, social workers, rusty tap water, roaches and rodents, urine-scented hallways and piles of garbage that were constant reminders, he noted, that our world, began and ended at a battered tenement apartment on 157th in Amsterdam. That was the world that Kelly and his siblings saw with their two eyes. But Kelly's mother encouraged them to live through our third eyes, he said, to see life as possibility. They were required to befriend the eccentrics, the children who had holes in their clothing. They were required to care for the birds whose wings were damaged. They were required to see beyond the confines of poverty and racism in which they lived and to dream about what life could be, to dream of a world absent of violence, absent of inequity, absent of injustice, to live through their third eyes. I implore you, all of you, to live through your third eye. See the world as possibility. See the end of that path as possibility. See beyond the painful constructs of poverty, racism, homophobia, xenophobia, sexism, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, inequality, inequity. Create the world that you imagine in your third eye. And as you do so, remember that God is with you. God is with us. Remember, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will move mountains. Thank you.